Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the questions, what is the point of my wealth, and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? Your host, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, director of private wealth design at Monument, will tap into their over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management to help you answer these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram at Monument Wealth and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Welcome back to the Off the Wall podcast. I'm Jessica Gibbs. Dave Armstrong here as well. Yeah, and we have a great episode for everyone today. We are going to be talking about three highlights from the market and the economy in, in the first quarter of 2022, giving kind of a recap, a highlights of what you need to know about what's been going on. Yeah, and you know, we publish a lot of content both on the podcast and the blog and just in general conversation that has to do with wealth management and planning and the importance of having the plan and all of that. And sometimes people may want it, that may lead people to wonder, geez, how much do we actually talk about the market if we're not publishing content about the market? And the reality of it is we are talking about the market every single day, just like a uh, plane captain flying, you know, a Delta flight doesn't get on the loudspeaker and talk about the maintenance schedule to the passengers. They are intimately familiar with the maintenance cycle of that aircraft, obviously. So I use that as an analogy of, you know, we are intimately familiar with what's going on in the market, why we're doing what we're doing in our portfolios. And just because we don't talk about it every single day in our content, mostly because we don't think that people should be focusing their attention on the everyday intricacies and news of the market. We certainly are looking at that all the time. And this is an interesting way for us to then take everything that we've done over the past 90 days and talked about and, you know, rip it off into a pod and tell people what we're talking about. And with that, we should probably introduce Aaron. Yeah, I was going to say one of the people who we are talking to every day here at Monument about what's going on in the markets is our portfolio manager, Aaron Hay. Aaron, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here. Before we dive into the highlights, which just to preface, one of them will be inflation. I know that's something that's on everyone's mind, so we are going to be talking about that. But before we dive in, Dave, why don't you kind of do some scene setting for us? Sure. So I think one of the most interesting things that I have heard people focusing on is how bad the first quarter was. And they're locked onto this headline of, oh, it was the worst start to the market since, you know, before COVID and early 2020. But, you know, the reality of it is, the end of the quarter, the S&P 500 finished down 4.95%, so 5%, right? So the quarter wasn't as bad as everyone felt it was. A lot of that had to do with the fact that by March 8th, the market was down right around 12%. And that bottom is what people were focusing on. And what they failed to realize was that there was a rally off that bottom into the end of the, the first quarter, which resulted in the market being down only 5%. And so- Sometimes these artificial snapshots in times of, you know, year-end performance or quarter-end performance, it's academic. It's a benchmark. It's a point in time for us to talk about things and put things in context. But the reality of it is it doesn't really matter if you're a long-term investor and you're compounding things out. But, you know, this is how people like to assess news and performance and things like that. So, you know, to talk about things at the end of the quarter is kind of fun too. And Aaron and I like talking about that. And one of the things that Aaron and I were having an interesting conversation about was what were the best performing S&P 500 stocks in terms of the top five? And then what were the worst performing stocks in the S&P 500 in terms of the bottom five? Well, okay, so let's list them out. 
The top five performing stocks in the S&P 500 were four energy stocks and one material stock. So you had Occidental Petroleum, ticker OXY, obviously an energy stock, was up 96.2% for the first quarter. So, you know, 100%, right? I mean, 100%. And then you had Mosaic Company, ticker MOS. That's the one material stock, material sector stock, up 69.6. So let's just call it 70%. You had Halliburton Energy, ticker HAL, up 66.2%. APA, which is the parent company of Apache, also energy, up 54.3%. And then Marathon Oil, obviously energy, up 53.4% just for the first quarter. So, you know, these energy stocks, huge, huge numbers there. And then here's the interesting part, and this may factor into why people felt the first quarter was so bad, was because a lot of these popular stocks that people pay attention to on a daily basis were some of the top five worst performing stocks. So we had three in the information tech or tech space, one in the consumer discretionary space and one in the communication services space, one of the newer sectors in the S&P 500. The first one was EPAM system, ticker EPAM, is an IT sector stock, was down 55.6% for the quarter. Etsy, which a lot of people are familiar with, that they're online shoppers, is in the consumer discretionary sector. Was down forty. Wait, Dave, can you say that? Can you can you say that one more time? Etsy is it is that wrong? I was going to say, how did you pronounce that? Yeah, say that one more time. <laughs> Etsy. Etsy. Well, I mean, it goes to show you how old I am. Oh, all right. <laughs> they got good stuff on there. All right, fine. <laughs> Let me break in with a quick story. I'm not, I don't want to drag this out, but it's funny you say that, Dave. When I was at J.P. Morgan, we used to have guys in New York who would come and do these regional calls with us about individual stocks that the private bank liked, didn't like, whatever. And one of these guys came on talking about the energy sector and was talking about this energy services company, very similar to Halliburton. It's actually Halliburton and this particular company make up like 80% of of uh, oil and gas services market. I'm, I'm making that up, but it's a high number. The ticker on that is SLB. And if you look up that ticker and read the name and read it phonetically, I don't know, Jessica, Dave, if you have the ability to look up to look up that company, but type in ticker SLB. Dave, how would you pronounce ticker SL? Schlumberger? I'm not, I'm staying away from that. I'm not embarrassing myself anymore today on this podcast. I'm not even going to take a stab at it because if I'm wrong, that's two in a row. I mean, it's terrible. It's a bad look for me, Aaron. All right. Well, this particular guy at JP Morgan pronounced ticker SLB as slumber. I can't even say it how phonetically you're supposed to say it. Slumberger. Sh- schlum- schlumberger. But that's not how you say it. How do you say it? Oh, it's Slumberger. Slumberger. Yes. And so. Wow. Oh, French. <laughs> immediately, people went off mute and said, What did you say again? And he was, he kind of, uh, quieted down after that, but that's what that reminded <laughs> me of. So, sorry to break in, Dave. Okay, fine. Etsy, ticker E-T-S-Y, pronounced Etsy, consumer discretionary sector, down 43.2%. PayPal, I think I pronounced that correctly, ticker P-Y-P-L, information tech, was down 38.7%. Netflix, I know I pronounced that right, communication services sector stock down 37.8%, and IPG Photonic, IPGP, also tech sector, down 36.2%. I'm not going to lie. I've never even heard of that company. I haven't either. That's why I just read it so slow to make sure I didn't mispronounce it. You know, so some of those stocks are pretty, well, you know, PayPal, Etsy, and, and Netflix, obviously people know those things, pay attention to them. So that could add into why people felt the the market was down a lot more than it really was. And then, of course, Facebook, 
which wasn't in the top five poorest performing stocks or Meta, down 33.9%. So, you know, people feel that because a lot of people own that stock. But if you take the top 40 best performers in the S&P 500 and you average out their return, the top 40 best performers averaged a return of 32% plus you have 30%. If you take the top 40 worst performers, the average was down 27.5%. So when you have the market down you know, 12% on March 8th and then finishing up down 5% and you've got some of these huge winners like Oxypeat and you know, up 100%, the reason for that is obviously, and we'll get into this, is that this, you know, the energy sector is only 3% of the total S&P 500, where the technology sector is somewhere between 25 and 30%, depending on the day. And so it can really feel a lot worse than it really is, especially if you're not diversified and if you're concentrated, which honestly, I still feel like a lot of people are massively concentrated in those big popular names. They're probably feeling a lot worse about the market because popular, well-owned names, struggling. Right. I mean, and people own them because it's a product that they know and they can understand. I mean, what does Occidental Petroleum does? I think I could kind of guess, but do I fully understand what their business and their product is? Probably not. So, Right. So you talked about individual stocks, kind of what was up and what was down. Aaron, can you do some broad strokes for us kind of on the different sectors, some stats on on what happened in first quarter? Yeah, I'll, I'll go over some stuff talking about domestic outside the U.S., talk about some bonds, commodities. But I want to go back to a few things that David mentioned and fill in the gaps here, talking about why the first quarter perhaps felt so bad, right? Dave, you had mentioned some stats on the top 40 best performing stocks and the worst 40 performing stocks in the S&P. And what you're getting at, there's a huge return dispersion there, right? You got the top 40 best performing stocks that are up 30 plus percent. Mixed in there are going to be a handful of names that are actually towards the top of the the market cap table within the S&P. So what we're getting at is, and I wish I had uh, looked up this stat in advance, but the point remains, the average stock in the S&P 500 was down significantly in the first quarter and especially intra-quarter. As Dave mentioned, we got a pretty vicious rally from the bottom on March 8th through the quarter end. But the point is the average stock has been down where you've got those mega cap tech names. You know, you didn't mention any of names like Google, Apple, the usual suspects being down 30, 40, 50%. So you've got these names at the top of the S&P that are really, you know, holding up the rest of the index. So while the average stock might be down, the names that are really carrying the index aren't down nearly as much and in some cases are actually up. So that's point number one, which is why the first quarter felt bad. I think way more importantly, way, way, way more importantly, especially for investor psychology, not just investor psychology, people that maybe don't invest, but read about the markets that see see the markets on TV. It's got to be inflation, guys. So if you've got the S&P down intra-quarter 10 plus percent, as Dave, you said, it was down, I think, 12% on March 8th since come back. When you factor in on top of that double digit inflation, that doesn't feel good as well. So not only do you see stocks down double digits, you're seeing inflation that's up double digits. And I would argue, and this is outside the scope of this call, but I could argue that the official inflation readings are severely underestimating inflation in parts of the economy and parts of the country. But not only that, you've got bonds 
which are supposed to be your portfolio ballast, right? People haven't really experienced this. Bonds have been down double digits in the first quarter as well. You've got the average stock that's down a lot in some cases. You've got double digit inflation and you've got other asset classes that are suffering as well. So I think you can't just look at the S&P off down what we say quarter end 5%. You can't look at that in, in isolation necessarily. Dave, you make a good point. It's important to keep that in context, but also you've got to look at everything else that's going on there. So yeah, at risk of going too far into inflation right off the bat, let's just talk some stats from the first quarter. Dave, you had mentioned some individual companies within the S&P, you know, energy companies. That's not a shock that energy has just been on an absolute tear year to date. And we'll talk more about that later, but you had mentioned domestic stocks. We'll call it the S&P 500 being the proxy here. I've got down 4.6%, which is called an even 5%. A few other places that we look, we like to look at a couple of, of subsectors, and I'm going to, not really subsectors, but more factors, right? People like to talk about factor investing, which could be a pod in and of itself. But you look at things like momentum stocks, right? These are companies that have been strong, that the momentum principle says, hey, if you're a past winner, you're going to remain a winner. If you're a past loser, you're going to remain a loser. The momentum stocks, however you carve that up, they were down 7%, so worse than the S&P. And then you get something like, like dividend growth, quality dividend growth. These are going to be more blue chip companies that have really good balance sheets that have, as the name implies, a certain level of quality to their earning stream. Those companies weren't down nearly as much, call it 3%. So you blend all that together. As Dave said, S&P 500 down around 5% in the first quarter. Well, of course, that's just large cap here in the US. Let's look outside the US, right? If you want to talk about international, and you'll often hear these terms bandied about, developed international, or there's an acronym called EAFE, E-A-F-E, which stands for Europe, Australasia, and the Far East. And all this represents our blue chip, large cap companies in places outside the U.S. that don't classify as an emerging market. Those stocks, down 7%. Then you look at things like emerging markets, and I'd say outside of inflation, this is an area of the market that is really a sour spot. I mean, EM has been a sour spot for a long time, but then you throw in the catastrophe that we've seen in Eastern Europe. Let's, let's back up for a second. Jessica, when you were going through undergrad, and Dave, I'm not, I'm not sure if, if the BRIC terminology was um, in vogue yet when you were going through CFA studies and going through grad school, but what does BRIC stand for? Brazil, Russia, India, China. Exactly. So you've got... Yeah, we, I'm, I'm back from when they talked about the pigs too, if anybody remembers that, back that far. I do not. No. <laughs> Remind me, what's the pigs again? I think it was Portugal, Italy. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. During the European sovereign crisis. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Similar thing. Well, of course, you've got Russia here, which you can't even trade... Russian equities. Uh, if you go look up, I think RSX is the ticker. They've suspended trading. So if you own and tried to go bottom feed off of a Russian stock ETF, you're essentially frozen out. So you've got US down 5%, internationals down 7%, EM is down 8%. And we can talk a little bit more about EM. That's, there's a lot more to, to uncover there. And let's look outside the stock market too. You know, we mentioned inflation. So What's an obvious thing, an obvious knock-on effect for inflation? Well, it's going to be bonds. Bonds, you've got a, a fixed payment, and so inflation is going to erode the value of that. So bonds have to respond in order to in incentivize people to buy. 
yields up, price down. Bonds, and I say bonds in large air quotes here, this isn't being filmed, but bonds is you measure, measure them by an index called the Bloomberg Barclays Aggregate, the Aggregate Index, okay? This is corporate bonds. This is, there's some mortgage-backed securities in here, and there's a lot of treasuries. Those were down 6% in the first quarter. So you've got US stocks down 5%, and then you've got your bonds down 6%. So you're getting hit with a double whammy. So I go back to, again, why it possibly felt a lot worse than 5%. It's because you've got that inflation, and then you've got bonds down worse than stocks. And then, hey, let's, let's talk about something's worked here. I think it's pretty obvious to everyone listening. I think it's obvious to you guys. Commodities, right? It doesn't matter what commodity. It has been on an absolute tear year to date for sure. Even over the last year though too, commodities are up 25% year to date when measured by another very popular Bloomberg commodity index. That's kind of a, a wrap on the first quarter, just more broadly. Domestic stocks down five, outside the US down seven to eight, bonds down more than stocks, commodities ripping. That's the landscape we're in right now. I just want to focus in a little bit more on international emerging markets because it really does feed into sort of a behavioral finance and a behavioral tendency of people. You'll hear people say all the time, I think, I think it's time. The market's been on a tear for so long, it's got to pull back. And so we hear that a lot. How much higher can it go? I'm worried that I'm investing money at the top. I just don't feel good. You know, it's, we've got to be ready for a pullback. Geez, the yield curves and pretty I know we're going to talk about some of this stuff, but you know, there's a recession coming. There's a lot of I think, I think, I think. One of the things that I've heard a lot of people say, I think, I think, I think on, that doesn't get a whole lot of press time is, I think it's time for international to turn around. I think it's time for emerging markets to turn around. The valuations look good. I think, I think, I think. And you were talking about the statistics of the international, and I'm going to use the IFA index here as, as we talk about this, and the emerging markets. And I'm just going to talk about the MSCI index levels here. So- we were talking about quarter, but I'm going to look at year to date because that's just what I have pulled up. So, you know, year to date, emerging markets are down 9.76% and the EFA is down 8.96%. So let's just call it 10%, 9%. Great. If you even go out to a three year chart and you look at the complete underperformance of the international stocks versus domestic stocks, you just go out three years. So the return on the SP 500, three years. Total return, 54%, up 54% since October, a trailing three-year. Okay, So you look at the IFA, which is developed international. That's It's only up 11.4%, and emerging markets is only up 2.23%. And you go out five years, and just the spread between the domestic and the international, and all that time, and I'll even go out a decade now. Okay, So here's a decade going back. 10 years. The S&P 500 is up 225% and the IFA, which is the developed big international countries, up 43% and emerging markets up 9, 9% over the past 10 years. How many times have I heard over the past 10 years, it's time, the valuations are low, this is the time to get into emerging markets. And it's just an indication of you just never know what you don't know and you can't predict these things at all. And those are terrible returns out of those two international markets. Can I just do a quick jargon break? Sure. Can you just quickly explain what total return means? 
Oh, sure. So as I'm looking at it, I'm just saying that the return from point A to point B, I'll use that decade again, from 10 years back. So rewind 10 years from now, the return of the S&P 500 over that entire 10-year period is 224%. Is that just price return, Dave? Price return. Just looking on Y charts, our partner, little plug for Y charts there. Yeah. So what Dave's getting into, and Jessica, your question on what total return is, for clients listening, for anyone listening for that matter, something to keep in mind if you're looking at return data, you need to know if it's price return or total return, meaning that the chart that Dave just brought up, that's just the the price returns. If you have a stock XYZ, it doesn't pay a dividend and it's up 10% in the year, its total return is 10%. Total return is price return plus your dividends or any distributions. So you need to also keep in mind that some of your investments, not all of them, of course, are going to be paying you income along the way. And you have to account not only for the price return, but for the income that you receive off of that investment as well. That's all it is. Total return is price plus dividends or income. So Jessica, thanks for pausing me there because I do want to make sure that I was clear about that. I may have misused some jargon because I'm just looking at a chart when I say total return. I just meant that the return for the total period of time to Aaron's point, when you are measuring the return of an index, it's just the index. It's just the price return of the index because it's not going to compound in the the dividend reinvestments. I may have said total return. I meant the return over the total period of time. So I want to clarify to everybody. Yeah. Total. Uh, yeah. Okay. But total return, price return, of course, dividends play a large role in total return. But Dave, more to your point, looking at the last year, three years, five years, 10 years on something like the S&P 500 versus EFA, which again is that developed international space in stocks and then emerging markets. And then you talked about return. The return disparity is huge. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay. And this is going to get slightly wonkish. But if you add investments to a portfolio that don't have a great return, that's actually okay as long as the, I'm using air quotes here because this is often a very poorly understood concept among a lot of people even in professionals in our community, correlation, right? So things don't necessarily have to go up in tandem. They just need to provide different types of return streams. We call them non-correlated return streams. And I'm going to go back to those returns. So it'd be one thing if emerging markets and developed international had non-correlated return streams to the US. We just haven't seen that. And what I mean by that is during times like COVID, during bear markets, during these these crashes, these stocks sell off just as bad or possibly worse than the U.S. And then in good times, during our bull markets, they tend to underperform. And so that's why I have such a problem with emerging markets. Dave, Jessica, you know, I've written about this. I wouldn't say extensively. I've written a few pieces. You can go find them on our blog. I'm going to have something else queued up here in the near future. But for the longest time, the orthodoxy has said you've got to own stocks outside the U.S. You've Well, and you've got to own emerging markets because that's the only place in the U.S. where the demographics are growing. And I'll be honest, I talk to a lot of people, former colleagues that are still in the industry, and several of them keep coming to me with that same drumbeat, like you've got to own EM because of the demographics, the demographics, the demographics. Well, I come to them with this and I'm actually getting ready to to red peel a few. Actually, I think I have red peeled a few people on this to get them to come around, but it's a game of performance. It really is. 
we caution people against performance chasing, but at the same time, it's important to not go against these really vicious trends. And Dave, as you laid out over the last three, five, 10 years, it has been really hard to be in EFA, to be an EM when A, you're not getting the correlation and diversification benefits of being there and B, the returns have just absolutely sucked. So that's a long, that's kind of my diatribe on EM for the, for this pod. So I want to get into the three highlights that we talked about. So what's the first highlight, first takeaway that you guys have from the first quarter? Well, you know, you can't talk about the the first quarter without talking about the Federal Reserve. Who? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just people may or may not be aware of the Federal Reserve here in the U.S. is our is our central bank. They're responsible for for monetary policy. They have a supposed, I'm using air quotes again, dual mandate of pursuing full employment, whatever that means, and price stability, whatever that means. So the Fed meets what, I think it's nine, 10 times a year. They don't quite meet every month. They've essentially backed themselves into a corner. We have had, for the most part, rock bottom interest rates, the short-term policy rates, we'll call them. Think of this as what you'd experience, you know, like in the money markets and things going out, you know, a couple of years, but the federal funds rate, that's the, the operative rate here. They've got these target rates. And going back to the great financial crisis in 2008, 2009, we've essentially pegged those rates to zero. And then we get to 2018, and actually, I'm sorry, it was 2015, Dave, is when the Fed started raising rates, and they would raise them 25 basis points every so often. And then in 2018, there was a, a quote, policy scare. And then I think it was after that that they absolutely did not touch rates. Fast forward to COVID, you get a shutdown of the economy, you get this extraordinary monetary accommodation, rates go back to zero. The Fed maintains quantitative easing, so buying bonds to keep liquidity going in the system. On top of that, I, this feels almost, I've got, guys, I'm going to try my hardest not to go into a diatribe here, but I think people see where this is going. Rates low for so long, you keep them low, quantitative easing, oh, we throw on fiscal stimulus on top of that, supply chain shut down, and then what do we get, guys? We get what we're, we're seeing with inflation today. So we're at 40-year high inflation. In fact, the March CPI stats came out this morning. Not quite as bad as people thought they'd be. I think there were some rumors, some whisper that they'd go into the 10% range. They didn't. 8.5%, that's still 8.5% year over year. That's the highest we've seen since the early 80s. And so what I'm getting at here is the Fed meeting back in March, they've backed themselves into a corner. They don't want to cause a recession, but they have to do something about inflation by raising interest rates. And that's the conundrum that they face themselves right now, which is, hey, how do we tackle the inflation problem, which once you let the inflation genie out of the bottle, I mean, it's hard to put back in, right? How do they tackle that without throwing the economy into a recession? How do do they have their cake and eat it too? My opinion of this, Dave, I'd be curious to get your take on it, is they can't. It's either recession or inflation. You're not going to have both you can't fight inflation without causing a recession. So that was the big highlight from the Fed in the first quarter. Yeah, I think, and I'm just looking back over you know my lifetime and that the big interest rate memories I have are the early 80s. And anybody listening to this that's a Gen Xer or a baby boomer will remember 
mortgages or parents' mortgages in the 13 or 14 percent range in the early 80s. Mortgage interest of 13 or 14 percent. That was my first experience with interest rate cycles. And then there were some other ones that took place early 90s. The one that I really remember the most is the interest rate decrease, the Fed funds decreasing interest rates after the tech bubble burst in 2000 and 9-11. And then the corresponding stair-stepping increase in interest rates during the Greenspan era starting in 2004 and just every single Fed meeting there was a 25% increase. And then all of a sudden we had, that led to the financial crisis. Well, there was a lot of things that led to the financial crisis, but that leading up to the financial crisis, interest rates were going up at 25 basis points a, a meeting. And then it was, boom, interest rates went down to zero after the financial crisis of 2008, stayed very, very low. And then the stair-stepping that you talked about that started taking place back, I mean, I'll call it somewhere in 2016, started that. And then boom, again, after COVID, just back down. And so I think, obviously, the Fed doesn't want to cause a recession. They want to get they want to strike some sort of balance between getting inflation under control by raising interest rates and slowing down borrowing and spending, but avoiding a recession. And I wrote about this in a blog too. It's, it's not like you are preparing yourself for the recession. You're preparing yourself for a recession. And if you're a responsible planner and investor, you're always preparing for a recession. That way you don't have to worry about the recession. I think everybody's worried about the recession right now. And a recession is going to come. There's I, the few times I can say with 100% certainty that there will be a recession in the future. I just don't know when. And again, wrote about that in some blogs in the past, recent blogs in the past. But it could be a mild recession. It could be a really bad recession. It could be like 2008 or it could be like you know the early 90s. So I just don't know. But Aaron, to your point, there's always a hope that they'll strike a balance. And I don't know. They never seem to do it. So. Well, it's it's also important to remember you don't know you're in a recession until you're already in one. Right, right. It's a backward-looking methodology, so it's not like we say, "Oh, we've just reached in, we've reached a recession." And I guess the the official definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. If you go back and look in COVID, I think they technically said we had a recession. It was a flash recession, right? I don't even count that as a recession. But Dave, talking about recessions, I know people love to talk about the yield curve versions that are going on right now. So to back up, people that don't know what the yield curve is, the government issues all sorts of bonds over various maturities going from a few months out to, to 30 years. And if you, you want to talk about bond lingo, you've got the stuff that's really short. They call those bills, so your treasury bills. You go out to 10 years or so, those are your treasury, quote, notes. And then now I don't think there are 25-year issued bonds. I think the the official, quote, bond that they issue is a 30-year. And so you do that, the market prices those out, and you can plot those on a chart between time on your x-axis and yield on your y-axis, and that's your yield curve. In a normal environment, call it, you should have your short-term stuff. That's pretty low comparison to the to the long stuff. And right now, we're seeing some spots on the yield curve that are a little unusual, meaning seeing things like the, the two-year bond, the yield on the two-year bond, which is actually higher than the 10-year treasury note right now. And the reason people are getting all concerned about this is these yield curve inversions have historically preceded a recession. Dave, I think you've written about this too. And before I kind of turn it back over to you to talk about that, 
I would say this about yield curve inversions. I think it's a very nuanced point that people need to be aware of when they hear or read people saying, we've got a recession coming, which we might, we don't know, but it's this. All recessions have been predated by yield curve inversions, but not all yield curve inversions have predated a recession. It's a little bit of a nuance. It's almost like the square, square rectangle logic where all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. That's just kind of something to keep in mind when you hear people talking about yield curve inversions. There's another way to say that too. It's yield curve inversions have preceded all recessions, but not all inverted yield curves have led to a recession. The other statistic there to know about too is that when the two and 10-year yield inverts, a recession takes place on average 19 months later. So it's not like everybody should be running for the hills right now. I don't think everybody should be panicking. The popular question is, you know, when's the recession coming and all that. Great. If you want an answer to that, it's it's 19 months. Okay. So let's just, okay, there you go. There's your answer, right? The interesting part about looking at the historical context of the yield curve inversions is that it can actually be pretty bullish for stocks. So I'll go back to a relatively memorable point in time, which is the 2000, I'm going to call it the end of 2005 to the end of 2007. The yield curve, the 2 and 10, inverted back in the, at the end of 2005. And the bull market didn't peak until two years later. And you know, I think it was like September of 2007. And the S&P 500 uh, over that time was up 25%. So from the date of the inversion to the date of the bull market peak of October, November of 2007, the market was up about 25%. So if you were out of the market because you were scared to death that the yield curve inversion was signaling a recession, you missed a 25% run on the market. So my point is, great, you can look at all these things and you can try to use it to predict or time or something. I think it's a waste of time. Stop preparing for the recession and start preparing for a recession in general. And this is the broken record alert, right? But if you've always got 12 to 18 months of cash piled up as an asset in your portfolio, just forget all this noise about after inflation, I'm losing money. Oh, bupkis, okay? Your cash value is not going down. And if you've got that money and you don't use it, well, then when a recession happens, you can buy stocks when they're low, or if you're sitting on cash now and we have yields going back up, at some point, it's going to be a great time to start rounding out a fixed income portfolio again. I would just really caution people about you know, what happens after yield curves invert and how long it takes for there to actually be a recession and a peak to the market. Yeah, Dave, you bring up two really good points, which is yield curve inversions, they're imperfect roadmaps. If investing was as easy as getting in the market when you've got a steep yield curve and then selling out when there's a yield curve inversion, everyone would do it, right? But as you've just illustrated, it's a very imperfect way of going about things. It's pretty good for from an economic standpoint of, of possibly signaling a, a future recession, but what the markets do in the interim is anybody's guess. And then secondly, the 12 to 18 months worth of cash bit, yes, totally get it. I'm not getting anything on my cash. Well, that's true, but Dave, as you had mentioned here, cash has the ultimate optionality, so to speak, for you to take advantage of dislocations in the market. All right, so let's talk about your second highlight, and that is inflation. I don't think there's too much more to talk about right now with inflation. We've already dedicated a lot of time on this episode to it. It's going to be a topic for a while, and my prediction earlier on this year was uh, we were going to get persistently 
stubbornly high inflation that at least officially didn't reach, doesn't reach double digits, right? 10%. As I said earlier, I actually think in certain parts of the country and certain parts of the economy, we're actually above that. I've got plenty of horror stories about Austin real estate. Jessica, I'm sure that you can attest to that too as well, having lived in Texas for a while. There's not a whole lot more to say with inflation right now other than it's likely to continue marching up. It's kind of the predictable consequence of some policy decisions that our uh, our elected officials have made in D.C. So we'll just have to see how that resolves itself. That kind of leads us into our third highlight that we want to round out the episode with, which is, hey, trends, right? So we've talked about the Fed. We've talked about recession probabilities or what the yield curve inversions might represent. We've talked about inflation. Well, big deal, Aaron. How is that manifesting itself in monument portfolios, right? I think that's what people all want to know the so what, where the rubber meets the road per se. So I'll just leave this with a few interesting highlights from our first quarter, talking about some trends. And we encourage anyone who's listening, whether you're a client or someone who's interested in being a client, hey, reach out to us via email or give us a call. But just a few things that we've seen in our managed portfolios year to date, our FAA model. And for people who don't know what FAA is, it's our flexible asset allocation model. This is a trend following model. I'd say the really important point here, it hasn't necessarily quote unquote killed it from a performance standpoint year to date, but what it's done a really good job of is identifying the trend in fixed income. We haven't been in bonds there since December. And quite honestly, I can't really envision a scenario where we're picking up much of any of that in the next couple of months. So FAA done a great job on being out of bonds. We'll keep with the theme of FAA. We talked about EFA developed international stocks, emerging markets. Over the last 12 months, we've been out of that, those asset classes and stocks, 11 out of 12 months. And then the one month we were back in it here, I think it was in January, de minimis positions. So FAA doing a fantastic job of sidestepping the drawdown, the official term you know you use for a market that's going down, the drawdown in fixed income and the continued drawdown in non-US stocks. And then a couple of notes on our single stock models. Again, this is kind of related to the theme of inflation, right? The things that we need, not necessarily the things that we want. I'll just tell you that our our single stock models, whether it's the 20 stock dividend model, the 20 stock growth model, and even over in our strategic income model, which is more of a, call it a discretionary, and I mean discretionary, I'm talking Dave and I, instead of necessarily a rules-based methodology, us picking up on themes elsewhere outside of a more systematic methodology, but we're picking up on energy. We're picking up on basic materials. Believe it or not, this may come as a shock to a lot of people listening here. Within strategic income, we bought into a GASP gold mining stock here recently. So a different flavor of investing in gold. That might be a podcast in and of itself, but that's what we're seeing here. That's the trends we're seeing within our model portfolios, whether they be the ETF portfolios or our single stock models, which is we're avoiding the drawdown in fixed income. We're keeping our exposure in the stock markets to domestic only for the most part. And then the single stock models, we're actually latching onto trends in the energy space, in the basic material space, the mining space, essentially anything that has been experiencing a supply shortage and continued really strong demand. Did we pick the bottom on those areas of the market? Of course not, we didn't. The best time to go buy energy stocks would have been when oil went briefly negative back in 
2020 or 2021. So no, we didn't, but the operative thing to know here is we're participating in those trends. Right. It's a testament to how the models remove a lot of our behavioral tendencies, Aaron, even you and I. It's going to buy what's working and it's going to identify what's not working and it's going to pick up on these themes without us having to decide whether or not those themes are valid or not. And the, the emerging market and international in and out is a great example of that because for the limited amount of time that we were in it, it was a positive return. Exactly. Anyway, with that, I, I think that kind of gets us to the end here. Quite the quarterly recap there. But hey, for anyone who thinks that we don't talk about this sort of stuff, you just got a 40-minute dose of it of something that happens every day around here. And again, I'll conclude with the analogy of the pilot again, which is our job is to get people from point A to point B safely and comfortably and in a way that removes the anxiety from your day-to-day life about this stuff. Let us worry about the maintenance cycle of the aircraft and the engine and the fan blades and the tire pressure and all that stuff. That's our job. That's what we do. That's part of our value add, part of the opinion-based advice that we give, and it's all wrapped up in that. Aaron, I look forward to talking to you tomorrow morning for another 40 minutes about this and look forward to recording again at the end of June. But with that, I think we'll just wrap up, Jessica. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.